The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Boy, what good time in singing. Um, what, what good lyrics that we focus on the glory and the majesty of our God. We start there. We end there. We never leave there. We never get past the cross. We never get past the crescendo of history in God redeeming a people to himself. We celebrate that over and over and over again. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who told his congregation um, hundreds of years ago, he stood before his congregation one time and he said, I don't understand why you people keep coming back because the only nail I keep hammering at is this one nail of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they kept coming back. And we should never get beyond it either, that we would keep hammering this one glorious, beautiful nail called the gospel. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we are right in the middle of a series, This Changes Everything. We came out of looking at the book of Mark, two years looking at Jesus Christ, God's plan of sending him to redeem humanity to himself in the book of Mark. We come to the end of it and we are faced with this, this conclusion. There is no other conclusion other than this changes everything. If this is true, God is who he says he is. If it's true what Mark has written about him and what Matthew, John, and Luke all of the rest of the writers of Scripture have written about this Jesus, then this changes everything. We can no longer be content to come once a week, sit in comfortable chairs, listen to a preacher, and then go home. It changes everything. And so in the outflowing, outworking of this, we have been for the last three weeks, four weeks today, we'll finish up this series tomorrow or next week, but it will not be the end of what we're talking about. We have rolled out to you what must change, that we are looking to, um, as a congregation, go to the nations, not just the nations, but to our neighborhood as well. It's a great way to phrase that, that we as a church are going to the neighborhood and the nations, and specifically when we talk about the nations, if we just simply vaguely said we're going to go to the nations, we would never get around to going to any nations, any people groups. But specifically, we have laid out for you that uh, we are desirous of wanting to follow God in striking up a partnership with North American Mission Board to go to Canada, to join the efforts that they are working with there to plant churches in one of the darkest areas of the world. One church for every 124,000 people in Canada on average. We're looking at specifically either Montreal or Toronto. Um, NAM has a goal in um, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver areas, uh, and all over Canada to plant 100 uh, or 1,000 churches by the year 2020. And uh, we are only eight years away from that, less than eight years away from that, and we want to get in on that doesn't mean that you're sending me to go be the pastor there. I'll still be here to be the pastor. What, what it does mean, though, is that you will send me, you will send people sitting next to you, we will send you, 
at all different times through the year to go over and work with church planters who are there. This will not be a once-in-and-out thing. This will be a partnership that, by God's grace, will last for years to come. Um, I hope uh, I hope to spend the rest of my days pastoring you here at this congregation and sending many of you to build churches in Canada and maybe beyond Canada, but also that we would go out into our own neighborhood here and that we would, we would reach and make disciples here as well as there. Sound like a plan? All right. Well, I want to continue in this, and I want to preach a sermon this morning entitled, I'll Swing a Hammer but don't ask me to talk. I'll swing a hammer, but don't ask me to talk. I told you I'm phrasing all of these sermons around excuses that we are anticipating to hear from you. Now, before you say, not me, maybe it is you. Because I think all of us are more comfortable picking up a hammer or a paintbrush or picking up chemicals to clean a kitchen or whatever the case may be, then we are then to, to go and actually physically tell someone to articulate the gospel. But words are important, aren't they? Words are very important. Um, uh, let me just give you an illustration of this. Um, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, um, two, three, four weeks ago, at our house, probably at your house as well, uh, there was this icy precipitation that was falling from the sky, and that is called Hail. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's called hail. Well, uh, I, my phone buzzed, and I saw that I had a new Twitter message from one of the people that I follow, and I opened up Twitter to see that it was my son who was at home, and uh, I think I might have been here, and, and, uh, and I don't know where I was, but um, I opened this, this tweet from my son, and this is what it said. We had hail at our house. And you think, no big deal, right? Except that he didn't spell it H-A-I-L. He spelled it H-E-L-L, to which probably all of those who follow him and follow me are thinking, we need to pray for Scott because <laughs> he had hell at his house. And, you know, I'm telling you, words matter. Words matter a lot. Think about what you could do, those important things in your life, those things that you would, you would look back on and celebrate. How would you ever have come to those without words? Think of trying to propose marriage without words. You could get down on one knee. You could extend a hand. You could look gazingly into the eyes of the woman that you are attempting to propose to. But she may not get it without words. She may need you to physically say, will you marry me? There are so many things in life that we need words. We're going to truly communicate. And the reality is, the gospel is no different. I want to read through this passage, and then I want to show you three things from this passage today. I promise you, I understand it's Mother's Day. I understand there are lunch plans, and we will get through. But listen as God has a word for us today. Beginning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, we read in verse 16, 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I want to show you in these verses this morning three things as we go to articulate. It is not enough for us to go lift a hammer, tighten a screw, paint a porch. It's not enough to do that. Those are all good things. They display the gospel but not in a way that would be sufficient for someone to understand the gospel. They display really the power of the gospel in our lives who go. But they don't show the gospel in a way that we might be saved. So here's what I'm saying. I want to show you in these few verses, who are we going to? What are we going with? And then what can we expect? First, who are we going to? Paul here in in these verses, in verse 16, says that as he's there waiting in Athens for his other fellow servants to come join him, he looks around the city and he sees this city full of idols and it says that he is provoked. 
That word provoked, he's provoked by what he sees in the city, is a word that means he's angry. He is irritated. He is distressed. This is the same word used here that is also used to describe Lot when he's living among the people of Sodom. There in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, it describes Lot living among those people as a righteous man who was tormented in his soul every day. That word tormented is the same word here. As Paul looks around this city, he looks around Athens and he sees this great city full of culture that is just overflowing with wisdom of the day. He sees all of these idols and he's tormented by it. He's angered by it. There was a Historian of the day, Petronius, a contemporary writer of, of, uh, at the time, during Nero's court, he said of Athens that it would be easier to come across a god or an idol in Athens than it would be to come across a man. It's true. Historically, we look back and we see that in, that, in this day, when, when he is writing this, when we're reading about this, that there are about 10,000 people living in Athens, and there are around the city about 30,000 idols. Three idols to every one person. And seeing this city full of idols is tormenting Paul. It's tearing him up. It is infuriating him. And I want to ask you the question, as we look around our city, as we look around Greenville, Spartanburg, Greer, Woodruff, Reedville, as we look around and we see our city full of idols, does it bother us? Does it torment us? I'm afraid that it doesn't. I'm afraid that we've grown all too comfortable with the idols around us, not just out there, but also in our own lives. That it's not just a city full of idols, but that if we were to look inside the lives and the homes of the people who are sitting in this room today, even into the home of this very pastor, we would come across idols that no longer torment us, but that steal our affection away from, from the one who is altogether worthy. And it really doesn't bother us that much at all. And I want to tell you, some of you have questions as we're getting ready to go into Canada. We're getting ready to go into our neighborhood and the nations. We're going to go to a people that largely, wherever we go in the world, it, we're going to go to cities that are filled with idols. Full of them. Greenville, Spartanburg's filled with idols. Toronto and Montreal are filled with idols. So what does Paul do? The Bible says here that he reasons with them. He reasons with them. That word reasons means that, that he went and he argued. He disputed. He made a speech. This is important for us to note because as he goes into the marketplace, as he goes into the synagogue, he doesn't go and simply serve them. He doesn't go and simply find things that he can do around the synagogue. He doesn't go into the marketplace and just look for things that he can sweep up. He doesn't just go to, to show the love of God. But instead, he goes and he argues. He makes a speech. He articulates the gospel. Notice that when Paul goes, he goes to the marketplace. Words, though, as he goes, are necessary. I want to show you a clip. Uh, Adam, if you'll fire this clip to show you just how important words really are. 
Let's, let's watch this. Mary's pastor in college uh, once was having dinner at our house, and he told the story. He pastor of a very large church, and he was preaching in the middle of the service. Uh, a man had a heart attack. Well, fortunately, it was a large church. There were several physicians, and the physicians attended to him, and they, they carried him back into the, the, the entrance of the church, and they, they closed the door. And, of course, everyone is, is a bit traumatized. They, they paused and had prayer for this man, knowing that he was in some kind of medical emergency. And, and this is a big church, that, and the pastor is, is getting ready to preach, and behind him is a raid. It's this full, magnificent choir. And one of the doctors who had been attending the man came back in the back of, of the sanctuary where everyone in the choir loft and everyone on the platform could see him. And he looked to the pastor and gave him a signal. He said, <laughs> the pastor read that to mean, don't worry, it was indigestion, he's fine. The choir read that to mean, he's gone. <laughs> it was time for the preacher to preach. He got up and preached the full sermon, the full entire exposition that he had on his heart and the product of his study, and they came to the end of the service, and he went to his car, and there he met his wife, who was in the choir. He said, we got in the car, and I knew, didn't take a gesture, I knew, I knew that something was wrong. And he said, I turned to my wife, and I said, Sweetheart, what's wrong? And she says, you are the most arrogant, self-centered, job-focused man on the planet. And he said, what did I do? She said, well, Dr. So-and-so came in the back of the church and told you that a member of your church had just died in the service of a heart attack, and you went on without skipping a beat. And he said, wait a minute, you mean that meant he was dead? And she said, well, what else could that mean? And he said, well, I thought it meant we're fine. And he said, so I immediately ran into the church and found the doctor, and I said, what did this mean? He said, it meant what, of course you thought it meant. He's fine. And he said, well, next time, this isn't enough. <laughs> because I have, I have an entire choir who thinks that that meant he was dead. He said, oh, no, I'd come up with something different for that. Here is the indictment. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. So, we're lost without words. The gospel requires words. The gospel requires words. I want you to notice who we're going to. Well, who we're going to, as Al Mohler has said, they're dead. Notice, notice how Paul goes. Paul goes to the marketplace. He goes where they are. It's not enough for us to go close to them. We must go where they are. Not enough for us simply to say, someone else will go, I will just send money. Not enough for us to say, someone else will go, I will just pray. The congregation, we must also go to them. He goes to those who happen to be there, to the Jews, the God-fearing Greeks, to the religious people of the day. He also finds there in the marketplace these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now listen to me. These Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I know this is kind of out of, out of the realm of our everyday language, but listen to me. 
this gives us a great picture of who we're talking about going to reach, who we will encounter in Greenville, Spartanburg, as well as in Montreal or Toronto. These Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they are intellectual thinkers. The Epicureans, the chief goal of their, their existence, of their lives, was to attain the maximum amount of pleasure while avoiding pain at all costs. Now, does that sound like anybody else that you've encountered? We live in a world where people say, if it feels good, do it. If it feels bad, don't do it. And that's the philosophy of our day. This Epicurean philosophy is rampant among us. We have slogans that say, feels good, do it. We have songs that say, if it feels good, do it. We have people that now, even among an economy where jobs are scarce and people are laid off and fired and all sorts of things. We have people that, that will refuse to take certain jobs because they will require too much. Too much responsibility. We live in a day where people are so self-serving that they would say, I, I want the most satisfaction, the most pleasure that I could possibly get, but I don't want to suffer at all. I don't want it to cost me anything. And this is who we will encounter as we go to Canada, to Greenville-Spartanburg. The Stoics, their philosophy or their understanding was that man really couldn't do anything to control the universe, that bad things were going to happen, good things were going to happen as well, but you really couldn't avoid any of it. You couldn't keep bad things from happening, so you just had to grin and bear it. You just had to take it. You certainly couldn't control the universe. Everybody listen to me. couldn't control the universe but you can control yourself. We live in a day where people are saying this very same thing. You know, I may not be able to control everything that happens to me, but by golly, I can control myself. And I won't let this get me down. I'll stick my chest out. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'll get along. And life may not be fair, but I'm not going to show it. I want you to know, as we go to Greenville, Spartanburg, as we go to Canada, we will encounter the very same people, same types of people that Paul encounters here. When he goes to the synagogue, he finds the Jews there, he finds the devout Gentiles, those God-fearing Gentiles. There will be religious people that we will come across as we go to the nations and our neighborhood. They will already have their religion, they will already have their God figured out, and we will come in with a foreign divinity. We will come in with a foreign deity to them. We will go to Greenville, Spartanburg, and to Canada, and we will come across people who are just there. They're just in the marketplace. They, they don't seem to care about God. They're, they're not really all that interested. They don't really want to know anything. They will maybe sometimes cordially give us a, attention. Sometimes they will write us off, and they will push us away, and they will not want to hear what we are trying to tell. And that's what's led to a lot of people saying, just show us the gospel. Enough talk already. Just show us the gospel. The reality is, showing them is not enough. We will come across people that are like the Epicureans, that will say things like, you know, it sounds too hard for me. If, if it feels good, I want to do it. They're going to be pursuing all sorts of things that are pleasing to them. And what we're going to come with is going to sound too, too harsh, too rigid. There's going to be people that are going to be very against. They're going to be like the Stoics. They're going to be very skeptical of anything that smacks of religion, particularly in Canada. We know this. 
Canada used to be a very Christian nation, and today they are very much burned over with Christianity or anything that smacks of religion. And so when we go and we try to, at some point, you hopefully will be standing on a street somewhere in Montreal or Toronto, and you will be attempting to have a conversation with someone, either through a translator or by yourself, and you will find it hard for, to have someone to actually listen to you. They will be like these Stoics, and they will say, can't control the universe, but I can control me. I don't have time for you. This is who we are going to. This is who we are to go to if we're going to be missional people. They call him here, they call Paul a babbler. They listen to him. He goes into the marketplace, into the synagogue, and he makes this argument. He's articulating the gospel with him. He's preaching the gospel. And from the outside, they display for us what the Bible says that, that will be true of them. What, what is this? What's he talking about? And they call him a babbler. Do you know that word babbler is a, is a word that literally means seed picker? They call him a seed picker. What this means is, get the picture of this. This is the picture of a bird or a chicken. You ever watched a bird or a chicken in the grass or in the, around in the yard, and they're, they're, they're walking around, and they're simply just picking up seeds. I won't, I won't like, act it out for you, but um, they're just picking up seeds, just here, there, everywhere. They're just sort of picking up seeds, going from one to the other. This is how they see him. They see Paul as just this one who's going around in this great city of learn, learned people, just picking up little truths here and there. He doesn't, really, he doesn't really comprehend all of them. He's just sort of espousing them now to us. What does this seed picker have to say to us? He seems to be saying things that are totally foreign. And Paul was glad to be called a seed picker for the glory of Christ. We will go and we will be called things like seed pickers. We will be called picks. We will be called closed-minded. We will be called all sorts of awful things. But the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Not to everyone, but to those who are hearing it and are being born again. So we go. We go and we tell. Overall, he says, you Athenians, when he stands to make his speech, overall, you are a very religious people, he says. And so are the people that we will encounter here and there. We will encounter people that are worshiping all sorts of deities and idols but they are dead. We've got to remember that it is not, being religious is not the same thing as being right with God. Interestingly, they take him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is this hill there in Athens, and it is named after the Greek god of war. There's the Roman equivalent is Mars. That's where you get Mars Hill from. They take him to this, this hill of war. Paul here is going to war. He's going to war, and what would be his weapon? Well, this brings me to my second point. Who are we going to? Very religious, idolatrous, closed-minded, unconcerned people who are dead in their sins and trespasses. But what was his weapon, and what will be our weapon? What are we going with? Verses 20 through 31 says this, What therefore you worship as unknown 
This I proclaim to you. Paul here stands up and he begins to preach. He pulls his sword out of its sheath. No longer is he like Peter pulling a physical sword out and cutting the ear off of the soldier. Paul knows that that will get him nowhere. But instead, he wills the the word of God. And he begins to preach the good news. And he does so by outlining a four-step process. Let me just walk you through this very quickly. In verses 28 through, 24 through 28, he begins to tell them about God. He starts with God. He says, this God, this unknown God, the one that you don't know who you're worshiping, let me tell you who he is. He's the God who has made everything. We don't create God. Instead, God has created us, and God sustains us. In verse 24, he's the one who made the world and everything in it. Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you realize what this means? You ever thought about what God had to start with? God had nothing to start with. You ever tried to create out of nothing? Yesterday, I'm out working on the deck, putting up new top boards over the rail of my deck. And I had done every single piece of it, and I got down to, I had one section of railing left and I had scrap lumber left over. I had a scrap about this big, I had a scrap about this big, and I had a scrap about this big. And so I thought, I can, I can piece this together, and probably I'll have enough. I can lay this out, and, and it'll look fine. It'll, you know, it's in a space where eh, it's probably not that big a deal. When I started to lay those boards out, I was an inch short. What was I forced to do at that moment? Well, I'll just spread them out a little bit and wood filler, I'll just, you know, cover those in. No, Lana will never go for that. I'm an inch short. That's all. I'm an inch short. But I couldn't do anything with it. Why couldn't I do anything with it? Because I can't make lumber. I can take what God has already made I can take what He has allowed someone else to harvest and I can apply that, but I can't make lumber. As much as I wanted to, I stood there probably for half an hour staring at this thing. Mmm. Mmm. But at the end of the day, I'm just, mmm. You know, that's, that's it. Do you understand that in the beginning, nothing. But all God has to do is Speak. universe. There's no scientist on the planet that can create life. They can take life that's already been created and they can, they can manipulate that in the lab and maybe grow something, but they can, they can never stare into an empty Petri dish and create life. Only God can do that. And Paul stands here up against the wisdom of the world of his day. And he says, this God whom you worship is unknown. Let me tell you something. He has made everything. Not only has he made everything, but he also owns everything. The Bible says in Psalm 50, 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I. Basically, what it's saying is, if you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can describe it, if you can smell it, if you can taste it, whatever it is, God owns it. Uh, Andrew Kuyper um, said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, Mine! God created everything. God owns everything. God sustains everything. In verse 25, he goes on and he says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Let me ask you this. What are you going to possibly give God that he, does not, he has not already given to you? I know I asked something similar to this last week, but what are you going to give to God that he doesn't, he's not already given to you? Many of you are worried, how are we going to do this? Really? The one who's created everything from nothing? The one who owns everything? The one who sustains everything? We come to a simple task like God says, go make disciples of all nations. I don't know how we're going to do that. But we we got to keep the lights on. Pastor, we got to pay your salary. There's, a, there's enough need right here. You understand, when we do that, now hear me, I, I've, had, I've had some of those same questions myself, but when we do that, do you understand what we're doing? I heard David Platt say yesterday in a sermon, that to do that is like standing in front of Niagara Falls and asking, does anybody know where I could find some water? We stand before the God of the universe scared to do what He's told us to do because we're afraid that we don't have what it takes. If God has ordained that we go to the nations, and we know that He has because He has written it in His Word, we have nothing to fear. There's no language barrier that will stop the gospel from going to a people that don't know it right now. Our God, our God created language. There's no plane ticket or, or, or gas price that will ever stop us from going with the gospel there because God will provide. Some of you in this room, you say things like, but I'm too old or I'm too young. We stand before Niagara Falls and we say, I need some water. And Paul here articulates the gospel to them. I am way behind let me go on. God created everything. God owns everything. God sustains everything. And yet, He has made Himself known to us. He doesn't have to. Notice what He says there in 26 and 28. I won't read it for the sake of time, but I've already read it once. He says that He made from one man every nation on the planet. And He has already set up their appointed times and put them where their boundaries are. You realize you're 
where you live because God's put you there? You realize that you will live as long as God has said you will live and no longer? God knows your time. He knows your boundary. But notice what he said. He says, so that. He's put you where you are. He's given you the time that you have so that you might seek God and find him. Now, don't, don't hear this and say, you know, this, I, was, I was right. You know, it's, it's our responsibility to seek after God. It is not our responsibility to seek after God. God has put himself on full display. He's put us where we are. He's given us the time that he's given us. And he says, here I am. Look around you. Mowing my yard the other day and out from under the, the, the little building out there as I, as I go riding by comes the biggest black widow I've ever seen in my life. I just about jumped off the mower. This black widow comes crawling out on this intricate web. Shows me her belly. and Shows me that red hourglass on her belly and says, I'm the work of God. That hail that fell at our house. How does that happen? How does that happen when it's 80 degrees outside? All of a sudden it gets cool and ice falls from the sky. Displays the glory of our God. Paul stands before these philosophers and those that are closed off to religion, and he says, look around you. You are where you are. You have the time that you have. And who do you think has put you where you are? He's not far from us. And he quotes even their own, even their own philosophers, even their own poets, and says, you, you, you know this. He goes, though, from God, and he quickly goes to man. Verse 29, in, in, in he begins to talk about this man. Look at what God's done. And then he says, but being then God's offspring, since we're God's offspring, we, we shouldn't think of the divine as gold or silver or stone. An image formed by art, or the imagination of man. We, we can't do this, he says. That makes sense. You and I may not carve gods out of trees like they were doing. You and I do the same thing. We, we look at what God has created and what God has given to us as gifts. And instead of letting that do what it's supposed to do and turn our gaze to Him, instead we allow our worship to come crashing down on the thing. It's what Romans 1 is all about. We see it all the time. Controversial this morning. Let me just tell you something. There are things that God has given us as gifts. Sex is a gift from God. meant to turn our gaze to the one who created it and gave it. What do we see all around us? We see men and women who have become perverted in their thinking and they worship sex instead of worshiping the God who it comes from. Children are a gift from God. Mother's Day, don't be messing with my children. Children are a gift from God. We see people all the time, though, that their entire lives revolve around their children. And instead of looking at their children and saying, bless God, 
Instead, they begin to worship their children, and everything revolves around them. Football teams, and sports, and food, and drink, and people, and jobs, and all sorts of things. All of it from God. And what do we do? The default position of our souls is to worship the thing rather than the God who made the thing. Then he says, look, you need to repent. You need to repent because God has set a day when he's going to judge the world. He's going to judge it in righteousness. He has every right to do it. He's going to, be, to, to execute perfect justice on every single thing. And he's confirmed this by raising Christ from the dead. Paul stands before them and he says, God, man, Christ. He holds before them Christ and he says, look, you're, you're trying to get to God as, as best as you know how. You're creating all sorts of idols, worshiping at all sorts of altars to false gods. And what you're missing is the God who has made everything who you are ignoring, has come to you. He's laid his life down. He holds Christ before them. I heard Matt Chandler say it this way. If we're going to get to hell, as we're hell-bent to do, in order to do so, we're going to have to step over Jesus. Because Jesus has done everything he can Everything needed, everything that is necessary to stop us from going to hell. But instead, we seem to be content. The default setting of our hearts, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're headed toward hell, away from God. But Jesus has come, not, not just in the middle of God here and man here. This is my analogy breaks down. But instead, if we're going toward hell, Jesus has come here. to turn us around, to give us new hearts that no longer worship the creation instead of the Creator, but He gives us new hearts that turn and look to the Creator and delight in Him. Here's, i, I got to end. I'm scrapping everything else. We're going to go to people that are not favorable to the gospel because they're dead in their sins and their trespasses. They are hell-bent on getting to hell. We go with this message, and we cannot mop enough floors. We cannot put enough roofs on houses. We can't serve enough meals to ever communicate to them that God became a man and intervened in this process. But instead, we must go and we must tell them there is a glorious God. You are wickedly sinful. But Jesus Christ, God himself, came to earth. He righted every wrong. He righted every wrong for those who would believe in him. And his righteousness that he lived out has been given, would be given to you by faith so that when God sees you. He no longer sees you as the one who continues to fail and mess up and you're headed toward hell, but instead He sees you as righteous because Jesus has given us His righteousness. 
And this Jesus then didn't stop there, but he went to the cross that was meant for us and he died in our place so that he could absorb all of the wrath for all of that sin. He took our punishment and gave us his righteousness. That's why I started the service by saying we don't come into this place to bring sacrifices. We don't have to appease God. God's been appeased. So what does Paul do? He articulates this and he calls them to respond. The response? Repent. Repent and believe. Turn. Trust Christ. Church, it will not be enough for you to go out into your community, go out into your neighborhood, go out into the nations and simply serve them. You can't serve them into heaven. You can't serve them into becoming worshipers of the one true God. Only the service of Christ can do that. How will they hear without a preacher? Let's pray. God, you know all things. You know what you're doing. You are sovereign over all. You have created everything. You own everything. You sustain everything. And you have made yourself known to us. And when you made yourself known to to us and we rejected you and went our way and worshipped the creature instead of the creator, you didn't stop. But you kept coming so that we might be righteous, so that we might be forgiven. God, I pray that in this room you would take that message and God, that in the hearts and the lives of those who are here, God, that you would press it in. God, that you would turn the light on. God, would you be merciful today and save people in this room? And God, would you be faithful to your character and to your mission? And would you call people from this room to use words to articulate the beautiful, glorious gospel that we have received? To tell. Would you send us out from this place, God, into Greenville, Spartanburg, and into Canada for the glory of your name? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take some time and reflect and respond. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the, the grandeur of our God and sinfulness of your condition without Him. The gift of the cross and the resurrection. I want you to think about your response. Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned? Are you fully trusting in Christ? Or are you hoping to bring him something that will turn him toward you? You will not find anything in all of the world that will ever turn him to you except Christ.
Christ, his own son. He has made the provision. He is both just and the justifier. So today, as Ethan leads, as you think about these things and you ask God to show you your heart and show you what this would require, I'm going to ask you to write where you are, respond to that. Some of you will today, when I come back up, you will need to repent publicly. You will need to come and take me by the hand. It doesn't mean come and air all of your sins to this congregation. What it means is that you would stop. Stop worshiping the creature. Stop worshiping yourself. Stop worshiping the idols. Worship the one who is alone worthy. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.